Message number eight of our series on personal temptation deals with the matter of being in control when we're not. Dr. Hunter will refer to Genesis chapter 3 verses 1 through 6 from the New American Standard Bible, and it reads as follows. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it, or touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You surely shall not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. And now let's join Dr. Hunter for his message today, titled, Being in Control When We're Not. We are currently describing how God brings good out of personal temptation. One such temptation that is very appropriately discussed today is the temptation to believe that we're more independent than we are. It's the temptation to believe also in the American bravado that if we just work hard enough and if we just last long enough and if we just get loud enough, we can control any situation. We can be in control. Now, this control thing is something that we've wanted for a long, long time. Dates clear back to the garden. When Satan said to Eve when she felt a little afraid that she would die if she ate the forbidden fruit. The serpent said to her, reading Genesis 3 verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, You surely shall not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Knowing is the key word there. That was the key to independence, control, living your own life. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes, that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. She gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. In the worship committee uh, every week, we have such fun in this worship committee, and, and we talk ahead about the sermon topics and we play with them a lot and, and we try to figure out what may be an avenue by which we can express this theme other than just the sermon. And so well, we were talking about this sense of bravado and how we you know, like to act like we're in control when we're really not. We don't like to live within known limitations. We were saying, well now who, who really symbolizes that? Who was someone who always, you know, felt like they were in control of the situation and acted like they were even though they weren't. And somebody came up with the memory of Ralph Cramden. Do you remember Ralph Cramden and the Honeymooners? Now, I was thoroughly insulted when there was somebody on that worship committee who sits in our very midst right now who was too young to remember Ralph Cramden. For those of you who don't remember, this was a sitcom in the early uh, 60s, maybe late 50s, I can't remember, 
age. Does that to you? Um, and and this was the this was a picture, a paradigm of the American family, and especially of the American man who liked to believe he was so strong and independent. And this particular clip that we're going to show you out of one of those episodes has Ralph at his lodge meeting. You know, back then, one of the things you did to make yourself feel strong is to join a lodge, you know? And this, his was the raccoons, the raccoon lodge. And it kind of made you feel because there's people who weren't part of it and you were part of it. Churches do that today, by the way. What church do you go to? Ah, oh, First Baptist. <laughs> you know? They do that. Northland. <laughs> they do that. Church of the Annunciation. Ooh. Ooh. OCC. <laughs> we do that. Yeah, we do. We do that. We, get, we scare one another by the church. Well... Anyhow, this is a scene. I just want you to watch this clip about someone who is making believe mostly about his independence. Now, for the second order of business, it gives me great pleasure to remind you, brothers, that next Sunday is the day of the Raccoon Lodge's annual fishing trip. And I'd like to report also that, like uh, last year... Brother Muldoon will bring the beer, and Brother Havemeyer will supply the nutwurst. Now, in the past years, we've always tried to make our fishing trips better than the year before. However, this year, there's been a consensus that we should leave our wives at home. However, we must take a vote on that. Now, all those in favor of not bringing their wives, raise their hands. Now, uh, all those in favor of bringing their wives, raise their hands. What's the matter with you? Why are you voting twice? I want to make sure that Trixie ain't going. But what's that got to do with it? Well, when she finds out she ain't going, I want to be able to say I voted for her going. Will you sit down? (laughs) The motion is passed unanimously. The wives stay at home. Yes, Brother Clanton? The President and members, as you know, for the last seven years, we have unanimously voted to keep the women off of the prison trip. I make a motion now that we vote to tell them about it this year. Well, who seconds that motion? Well, isn't anybody going to second it? Huh. Sure. Sure. Just as I figured. You all vote that the women are not coming on the fishing trip. Big men. But what does it mean? Nothing. Because when it comes time to face your wife, you all back down and give in. That's why... Time to ask yourself a question. Are the raccoons mice or men? Oh, wait a minute, Cramden. How come your wife was always on the fishing trip? Because I let her come, that's why. Because I let her come, that's why. And do you know why I let her come? Because I didn't want to show you guys up, that's why. (laughs) Now look, I'm going to say something to you men, and you better listen to it because it's important. Every time you get into the habit of saying yes to your wife, you're getting into the habit of saying no to your independence. It's time to make a decision, men. Are you going to retreat into the darkness of slavery? Or are you going to advance, advance into the sunshine of freedom? (laughs) I say advance! (laughs) This is our last chance. If we let these women take over our fishing trip, we are through. 
All is lost. Remember, today it's the fishing trip. Tomorrow it'll be the pool room. That's right. I second President Bush. That's a good thing. Well, we'll be around. Ah, gentlemen, this is a great night in the history of the raccoons. Say, how about a poker game as a declaration of our independence? The beer and the pretzels around me. Thank you very much, Mr. President. Thank you, man. Oh, well, I got ahead of the rotten ping pong player, but you make a good speech maker. If you were 90 pounds lighter, the boys would have carried you out there on their shoulders. <laughs> All right, let's play a little poker, pal. No, uh, you go ahead. I don't want to play. But you like poker. I know, but Alice told me to be sure and be home at 10.30. <laughs> what a perfect image of how we think about establishing our independence. But yet, how, no matter how much noise we put into it, we still operate within limits. Do you know, Christians, in order to mature, we must understand that the American dream is not the Christian dream. The American dream says, you can be anything you want to be. Whatever you make your mind up to be, if you only have enough power, if you only have enough effort, if you only have enough perseverance, you can do it. Well, in the first place, that doesn't even give enough credence to the natural limitations we have. But you know the kind of mentality that arouses within the Christian life? A mentality of frustration. Because we don't recognize that God is in control. We don't think about God being sovereign enough. And we begin to think that we are the ones that are sovereign. Oh, if I can only work at this Christian thing hard enough, then I can be a good Christian. If I can only read my Bible enough, then I'll be mature. If I can only learn the right prayers, then I'll be healed. Well, one day Orson Welles was on a movie set. Some of you remember Orson Welles. He was built a lot like Ralph Cramden. He was huge and boisterous and always in control. And on this particular set, he was going here and going there, and he was doing the job of the director and the job of the producer, and he was just taking over the whole thing. And Herman Mankiewicz was assistant director on the job, and he whispered to a friend of his, there, but for the grace of God goes God. All of us would like to believe that about ourselves. All of us would, would like to be in this Horatio Alger rags to riches kind of mentality. Oh, I'll do it for you, God. You couldn't have picked a better one than me. But you know what? That's silly. God is not interested in us becoming strong enough to control the world. God is not interested in us thinking that we can learn better how to run the world than He runs it. You remember Psalm 127, verse 1? Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord keeps watch over the city, they who keep awake keep awake in vain. You understand that. Why then is it so difficult 
for us to get that in our daily lives. Why is it so difficult for us to understand we can work as hard as we will and we should work as hard as we can, but it still may not come out the way we want it to come out? Josh came home yesterday. He's been working two jobs to go to college. He had a night job and came home and said, Well, lost my night job. We said, What's up? He's working at the White Mountain Creamery. Um, said, well, the boss called us all in and said, you know, you guys have been doing a great job. And we've been, you know, the store's been making money, fist over glove. The manager's a great person, run, doing a great job. But the owner who owns the franchise, something happened and he's just shutting them all down. Now, that's a great lesson for Josh to learn. That you can do your job as well as you can. All those people around you can do their job. You can even have the effect you wanted to have, and that, the, that effect is to make money for the company. But you still haven't got control of the situation because the owner may have different ideas. Put up the first slide, and let me show you something visually that's very important for a mature Christian to understand. And this is something most Americans don't understand because it's not in our culture. Cause and effect does not equal control in the world. Now, this is a very difficult lesson to unlearn because most kids growing up, if they bug their parents enough, if they push enough buttons, can get what they want. Go to any grocery store in this city, stand there for a half an hour, and you will hear this. I want it, 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 I want it. And you'll hear this parent go, you can't have it, you can't have it, quit it, quit it. You're embarrassing me, quiet down, quiet down. I want it, I want it, I want it, I want it, I want it. And you know that kid continues because the kid knows if he can produce enough I want it as the cause, and his mother can become tired enough as the effect, he can avail and gain control. And that's exactly what happens in nine out of ten uh, times. Now, what happens? Okay, you can take that off. What happens when the kid grows up and does the same thing to God? I want it, I want it, I want it, I want it, I want it. It says in your word, it says in your word, it says I want it, I want it, I want it, I want it. And God says, no. That's not in my plan. That kid is crushed. You know why? Because he has the wrong mentality of what prayer is for. You see, most Americans think of prayer in terms of politics. Prayer is something you use to gain power in order to gain control of the circumstance. That's the most immature but most widely thought of use for prayer. You've prayed this prayer. You've prayed it as a pagan before you ever come to, came to know Jesus Christ. Oh, God, if you give me this, I'll never ask for another thing. Remember praying that prayer? Oh, just give me this, I'll never ask for another thing. Bargaining like you've got so many requests and you're going to cash them all in just for this one request. By the way, that's a dumb prayer because... Just think of this logically. Most people who pray that prayer only come to God when they want something. And so it's in effect saying, Oh God, if you'll give me this, I'll never speak to you again. I mean, basically that's what it's saying. Don't pray that prayer. 
Prayer is not something to be tagged onto a desire. It is not something to accumulate the force of spiritual power so that you can appease your desires or take control of the world. As a matter of fact, Jesus, when he was in this world physically, spent most of his time helping disciples let go of control. If you have your scriptures with me, turn to Luke chapter 10. Let me show you what happened when he sent the 70 out into the world to minister. Let's start with verse 3. He starts out with some very scary news. He says this, Go your ways. Behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Great news, isn't it? Now, usually when you're in a frightening situation, you want all of the reinforcements you can get, all of the resources you can get, all of the, the safety devices that you can get. And in the very next verse, he starts to take all of those away. Look at what he does. He says, carry no purse, no bag, no shoes. Greet no one on the way. In other words, don't get a bunch of people and make this a political deal. If I get a big enough group, then they'll listen to us. He says something very simple. Look at verse 9. He says, when you enter a city, verse 8, just take whatever they give you and two commandments. Heal those in it who are sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. In other words, your only job, your only job is not to accomplish anything. It's just to minister and to teach. Do what you can for them. Teach them what you know. That's your only job. Will that succeed? Well, sometimes yeah and sometimes no. Look in verse 16. It says, the one who listens to you listens to me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. In other words, sometimes yes, sometimes no. And he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. You know what? People who love God have been learning for a long, long time that it's only God that makes things happen in any permanent sense. If you will read in John chapter 3, verses 27 and 28, John the Baptist knew this. They were trying to credit him with being having a transforming work. And look at what he said. A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I have said, I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Do you know what is taking place in his mind? What's take, what he's thinking about is, I'm not in control. I've simply been sent to make way for the one who is in control. Let me ask you, how much of your life is simply making way for Christ instead of trying to take control of the situation? Frightening, isn't it? And if Christ is going to take control of the situation, then he is certainly going to do it dramatically and evidently, isn't he? Turn with uh, me to Matthew chapter 26. I'm reminded of that verse in 
John chapter 16, I think it's verse 33, where it says, Have no fear, I've overcome the world. The next thing that happens to him is he's crucified. Now that's certainly dramatic control, isn't it? Look what he does here. Crazy Pete gets sword happy. Starts swinging it around. And look at what Jesus tells him in verse 52. Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place. For all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. You know what he's saying here? Those, thing, those people who deal in power will be defeated with power. Can you hear what I'm saying here? If that's how you get things accomplished, by power, if that's how you assume to establish the kingdom of God with power, you're going to be defeated by power. Look what Jesus says. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? In other words, when you have the power, it's not yours to use. For expediency's sake, there are times, many times in your life, when you could use your power. Don't. Because that isn't the scriptural way. Look at the next verse. How then shall the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen in this way? Many times, the restraint of the power that we have will give further and ultimate evidence to the power of God and how God does things instead of how we want to do things. Christians, in our own theology, there is this desire through independence and this wielding of power to make the world over into the image we think God wants it to have. We've talked before about how the name it and claim it charismatics use God to get what they want. You know what? People from the Reformed camp, my own particular brand of theology, also do it. They call them Reconstructionists. They call them Dominion Theologists. These are people who believe and are currently active in our political system that say, you know what? If we could only get everyone to obey the Old Testament law, then our country would be saved. Our country's going down the tubes, and the only way that we can get the thing under control is to spread the gospel, not just the gospel, but to spread the obedience to the Old Testament law. And if we can get enough people to not only believe in the Old Testament law and follow the Old Testament law, but to elect officials that will govern by the Old Testament law, then our country will be saved. Never mind those who are non-Christians. They are out of the Old Testament law. By the way, Old Testament law would be capital punishment for fornication and so on and so forth. You can go read it yourself. It's very harsh. But they believe, see, that's how to take control. Well, I've got two questions. What makes them think we can do it today if the Old Testament law didn't work first time around? See, that's the very reason Jesus came, because nobody can keep the thing anyhow. We need the grace of Christ. All of us stand in the need of the grace of Christ. But the second question is this. Whose deal is this to control? Our job is not controlled. Our job is to be controlled by God. 
Put up the second slide. Let me show you another equation. Visually, I want you to remember this. Control, that's God's impact on our lives. God's hold on us. Plus cause. What happens in our lives because God's gotten a hold of us? Now, it doesn't mean you have to do something, although that can, that can mean you, you, you are doing something because God's gotten a hold of you. But it can just mean that there is something different in your life because you have spent time with God equals an effect or an impact on the world. Your only job is to be under the control of God. And that will make you be a cause that has an effect on the world, not a control of the world. Those are two different things. Okay, take that uh, thing down. Let me talk for a while about prayer. Because we are urging, as you can see from the banners, we are urging all of you to spend this week in serious prayer. Every day. And what we would like you to do, and this will be culminated next week in a concert of prayer. What we would like you to do is to change what is probably your vision of prayer. Let me tell you four levels of prayer that I have gone through, and they may be like the ones that God is taking you through. My first level of prayer, the first uh, way I prayed, was exactly what we've talked about this morning. I prayed for results. You know, I, I thought that's why you prayed. You prayed to change things. You prayed to, you know, have a, have a, a visible immediate impact on the world. And so God, boy, I've got done my knees. Oh, God, I claim the promises. Now, now, let me say this. Please, there's nothing wrong with claiming promises. There's nothing wrong for asking for immediate results. I was talking to a lady that we prayed for three weeks ago. Uh, has lung cancer, just big masses in her lungs. And we prayed for her in a prayer room, anointed her. And she went the next week to have an x-ray. And those things are shrunk dramatically from the x-rays. There's nothing at all wrong with that. There's everything right with saying, God, please, if you would, we are specifically asking you for immediate physical healing. Do it all the time. And I hope you do. I hope you're never, never even um, reluctant to lay your hands on somebody and pray for dramatic results. But you've got to get out of the mentality that that's why you pray. Because God will say to you at various times, no. And then you do one of two things. You either go to a prayer seminar on how to have a more effective prayer life, which is French for how to really get what you want. Or you go to the second stage of prayer, which is, well, God, if I can't have what I want, help me to understand why I can't have what I want. Help me to know why you've said no or not yet to this thing. I, I just want to know. Could I say to you that our desire to know is a very normal thing, nothing to be ashamed of, but it can be another means of desiring to control the world. That was Eve's means of desiring to control the world. She just wanted the knowledge, see? It was desirable to make one wise. Oh, God, help me to know why everything happens like it does. 
then I'll be back in control because I will have understanding. No. There are times, and I can guarantee it, that you can stand on, or, or kneel on your knees so long they get numb and you still won't understand. So what happens then? Well, you either give up on this prayer thing or you go to the third level. The third level is, God, I didn't get results and I didn't understand, but at least we can have fellowship. That's the third level. Now, that's good, isn't it? That's good, too. But you know what? There are lots of people who pray, who pray long periods of time, who have asked honestly if they felt closer to the Lord. They'd look at you and say, Nah, I don't. I still feel as distant. I feel like I'm alone. I feel like there's no one out there. What happens then? If you haven't got results and you haven't got knowledge and you haven't got a feeling of closeness, what happens then? Then you go to the fourth level. And I'm going to stop with this one this morning because this is the point. The fourth level is, God, I didn't get anything I wanted. But help me to be of some use to you. Through some way I don't understand, help me to be of some use to you. Help me to have an effect, even if I don't know what that effect is. Do you know what happens when you pray that prayer? What happens every time you go into prayer searching and seeking to be with the Father? There is a transformation of your life. It may be unnoticeable by you. Usually it does go unnoticed by you that God has changed you in a certain way. But He has. And God has taken control a little bit more in your life. And there is a little bit different effect that you have in this world. And it doesn't happen all at once. And it's not all dramatic. And sometimes you can't tell it. But sometimes you can Somebody came to talk to me this week on... We're getting several leaves from time to time now since the church has grown like it has. It's gone like from 300 to 2,405 years and, I mean, in worship. And, and uh, so people who are writing books like this church growth stuff and they like you know, how to manage a large church. And, and this guy was a wonderful guy. came in and says, I'm, just, I'm canvassing the nation. He's from Pittsburgh. And, and he said, I'm writing a book on uh, church management and... and uh, uh, church leadership on lar- in large churches and want to interview you. And I said, well, I haven't got much to say. He said, well, just let me come in and ask you a question. So came in with a whole list of questions, and it was such a frustrating time. Because he just kept saying, well, how are you doing? I kept saying, I'm not doing it. God's doing it. We're just looking at it. Well, no, there's got to be there's got to be ways here. There's got to be, what do you, how, you know, how do you structure the staff time? And how do you, I said, I don't know. We just kind of hang out and we talk and we just pray a lot. And we just kind of watch what God's doing. Oh, he starts to get red, you know. He's starting to talk to me like I'm retarded, you know, like I'm stupid. You, no, let me ask it another way, you know, like I'm just not getting it. And I keep saying, there's nothing to get here. We're just listening and watching, and God's doing it, and we're trying to stay out of the way. I tell my students at the seminary the same thing. 90% of church leadership is just trying to figure out what God's doing so you can cooperate. And even when you can't cooperate... To be awestruck 
with what he's doing. That's what leadership is. He's just listening and looking and saying, God, if I can do anything here, I'm available. There was a pastor that I knew. He was my pastor. One of my pastors growing up. This was a man very unassuming. And to talk to him, he had no great lightning bolts that came out of his mouth and said, Oh, wow, I've just got some great understanding. But this guy could walk in a room. And the effect of him being in that room was that the presence of the Holy Spirit was so strong, you just started feeling convicted for everything you'd ever done. Oh, God, I'm a sinner. He just walked in, he smiled at you. And there was such a strong effect just with his presence. He didn't do anything. It's just who he was. You know why? Because he spent so much time with God. And he wasn't trying to become anybody, or he wasn't trying to do anything. He just spent time with God, and that's what mattered. And so the effect that he had on people's lives was profound. It was like the shadow of Peter as he walked around. Because Peter had spent time with Jesus. It says in Scripture, didn't, aren't these the guys that spent time with Jesus? And so the very atmosphere of their lives had a profound impact in the world. It wasn't controlling. It didn't have to come out a certain way. It doesn't matter how things come out from your time with Jesus. This church could go to a hundred people tomorrow. could go to a dozen. doesn't matter. What matters is, are you spending time with Christ? Are you seeing what He's doing? That's what matters. And God does what He does. Gently and incrementally as well as mightily. Don't miss the effect of the prayers that you think don't, you think don't have an effect. Those prayers accumulate. And they have an effect not only on your life, but on the world. One story I heard, I'll, I'll quit with this. One story I heard not too long ago was a story of a young boy who tried this prayer thing. And it didn't work for him. So he just decided not to believe in God anymore. Went home, told his mom he didn't believe in God anymore. Now this woman was a Christian. She happened to be a Roman Catholic. Now, I know that gives some of you problems, you radical Protestants. But, sure, it's possible. She took him to a church that had a statue of Jesus. Now, I know you're going into tremors here. Cut it out. I want you to hear what this means. Don't get all hung up on the details of this. Statue of Jesus. This statue of Jesus had one foot in front of the other. The mother took her son in there and she said, I know that spectacular things are not happening in your life. But I want you to know that even with little things, speaking of little things, see you. <laughs> even with little things, given time, they will have remarkable results. And that's what prayer does. Given time, enough trips to the Lord, they have remarkable results. She said, look at that stone foot. And this foot of Jesus that was out front was rounded. It was about a half a foot. 
She said, do you know how that foot got like that? The little boy said, no. She said, thousands and thousands and thousands of people have been through this church over hundreds of years and kissed that foot. Do you understand that a gentle kiss enough times over a long enough period can wear away stone? Please, please understand the power of prayer. Please understand that every time you go, it counts. Please understand that it's not for the results you may think, but it's for the results God wants. And please know that as you spend time in prayer, God will send to you exactly what you need to have the effect God wants you to have. One more scripture. Acts chapter 9. This is Saul, one of the strongest men, and after he became a Christian, one of the strongest Christians that ever lived. He's on his way to Damascus. Verse 3, And it came about that he is, as he journeyed, he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Strong, but got knocked off his horse by light. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It was Jesus just asking him a question. And that question was enough to put Saul into a position of submission. Look at the next verse. He said, Who art thou, Lord? He's in submission right now, isn't he? Let me ask you this. Are you tough up against a situation you can't control right now? And no matter how much you do to try to manage that and get it under your control, it won't come under your control. When are you going to say, Lord, when are you going to get in submission? I hope it starts today. Read with me. He says, Who art thou, Lord? He said, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and it shall be told you what you must do. And so he makes his way into the city. And for three, three days and three nights he doesn't eat. He's blind. He can't see anymore. He's in a humiliating posture of being totally helpless. But the Lord sends to him what he needs. Why? Look in verse 10. Now, there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he said, Behold, I'm here, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street straight, called straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul. Now, look, here's why he got what he needed to affect the entire world. For behold. In, in, in Greek, behold is edu, and it means focus on this. Look at this. This is important. Behold, he is praying. Pray with me. God, first we would ask that with your spirit you would go to anyone in this congregation this morning who does not have the first basis of prayer 
the first basis of approaching you, and that is accepting Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Teach them, Lord, that they have access through the Savior, that the, that the curtain temple has been torn in two, even as our banner out there, and that means they have access to you through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So if they're ready to live according to you instead according to their own independence, God, let them right now pray this prayer with me. Jesus, come into my life and make of it whatever you want. I accept the forgiveness of sins that only you could accomplish for me. I have no basis of which to ask for forgiveness on my own. I'm totally helpless, but I do accept what you've done for me. Come into my life and live with me forever and let me follow you. Now for the rest of us, Lord, who have said that prayer, but we are up against a situation right now that we have every temptation to try to control. We just don't know how to do it. Help us to turn it over to you. Help us to come to you to be controlled instead of to control. God, there are parents in here right now who want to know how to control their kids. And they can't do it. Let them come to you and say, Lord, control me. Make me consistent. Discipline me. And I will discipline them consistently. Love me and I will love them. Make me the image of Jesus Christ. But transform my life so that when they look at me, they can look at you. There are husbands and wives right now. There are some in the midst of divorce. And they're trying to push all the right buttons to put it back together again. And they can't do it. Because we weren't meant to control. We were simply meant to have an effect. God, release them from that terrible burden of having to control the outcome. And let them, oh God, just come to you and say, Lord, just you control me, okay? Send your spirit to me and transform me. If there's something I'm to do, something I'm to say, let me know. Otherwise, just transform me so that I can trust that you will work out your control. The same with workers. The same with projects. God, help us not to suffer under the illusion that we can make things come out a certain way. Help us simply to come to you and say, Use me. However you can. Use me. So that others might see you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Christ in relation.